0: Welcome to the first ever episode 4 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. As always, we're coming to you live from the home of Fintech up in Level 39 in Canary Wharf. I'm Simon Taylor. I'm not David Breer, uh, but I am joined by David Breer and uh, Jason Bates. Chris Skinner sends his excuses, I'm sure, Uh, but we love you, Chris. We miss you. We want you back. We have some excellent guests coming up for you today. Uh, None other than Dave Birch from Consult Hyperion, uh, always entertaining and always on form. And, of course, Isabella Kaminska, the reporter from the Financial Times Alphaville, the excellent blog, which if you haven't read it yet, you should definitely check out. We're available on 11fs.co.uk and at fintechinsiders or at 11fs team if you want to speak to us. But now it's time for the news. Uh, Lots happening this week, lots to get through. Uh, Fortunately, we have uh, David and Izzy with us. So, David, do you want to briefly introduce yourself?
1: Uh, sure, I'm Dave Birch, I'm Director of Innovation at Consult
0: Hyperion, which is a specialist electronic
2: transactions consultant. And Izzy? I am Isabella Kaminska and I write for FT Alphaville, which is the Financial Times blog.
0: Fantastic, and of course uh, we have Jason and David as always, and, and kindly from 11FS as well, MJ this week. Hey guys. Uh, okay, so first story up is uh, a, a double-barreled story. We've got uh, Visa and PayPal having a strategic deal, and MasterCard and Vocalink um MasterCard purchasing Vocalink, in fact, it appears. So big doings in the payment space. Any thoughts um, from your head on this one, David?
1: Um, actually, to take the second one first, I actually think the MasterCard and Vocalink story is a much bigger story than it appeared at first because um, it was seen as you uh, you know you know just some obscure payments company being bought by a giant payments brand because the press don't really understand what Vocalink would do. Yeah. But, um, so let's test that theory. Let's see if I
2: understand what we're okay. going on. Yeah. So when, whenever I've seen it, I've seen it in the sort of faster payments, like Bank of England structures, yeah. how, how it operates a, a parallel option in terms of...
1: Well, they, they, op, they yeah. operate things like faster payments. Mm-hmm. So in origin, they were owned by the banks. And the regulator said, actually, because they're owned by the banks, they're probably not bringing in enough innovation. So therefore, we need to widen the ownership. And as soon as that statement was made, there were quite a few people I mean I am not unique in this but there were a lot of people began looking at MasterCard as a potential acquirer. And the reason for that is that in the UK, visa have been extremely successful at building the debit portfolio. So so most most people in the it's UK MasterCard have a debit card. 5%, don't they? Yeah. Debit card. So so um, so the ability to deliver a new debit like product but running over these faster payment rails is, was much more valuable to MasterCard than it was to Visa. So lots of people began to look at MasterCard as a potential purchaser. Conversely, Vodafone have actually been quite successful at beginning to export the technology they use to build the faster payment service to places like Thailand and America and Sweden and so on. So for them having, a, but it's actually quite a small company. So for them, having the sort of international reach of a MasterCard makes complete sense. So so I think it's a, I personally, I think it's a very good deal for, for both of them. But for the payments industry as a whole, I also think it's a really good thing because it's going to stimulate and drive on the coming generation of direct bank account payment systems. And that, so that's, that's kind of our new era. You know, we had the we had the credit card era and the debit card era, and people have been talking about the mobile payment era. But at the moment, all we've really done is is stuff cards inside the you know. We're due a new generation of payments products, and I think this will usher in. So I think actually that's quite a big deal.
0: Does this mean, David, sorry to cut across you, but does no, this mean no. that we're moving away from um, the credit card rails as were, well, so the actual old um, Base24 file type towards the more Vocalink type rails and faster payments for everything? And do, what does that mean for, yeah, you know, I, I like is that changing the economics in the industry So. Well, I, I don't
1: want to comment on
0: the economics, yeah. but, but, but
1: I think you're right in saying that the... The idea of running products which look familiar to consumers, so to consumers it looks like they're using the product they're familiar with, mm-hmm. but actually it's not running over the the uh, the card infrastructure that's been built up over the years. Mm-hmm. It's running over a much simplified account, account. I think broadly speaking, that's a, that's that's quite a Now that's that's to me that's very different from the Visa PayPal deal, mm-hmm. which is more to do with well, a settling a squabble between. Because remember, the the guy that runs Visa, he had a right go at PayPal earlier in the year, you know, we're going to bury you and all this sort of Mm. thing. Because they were fed up with PayPal redirecting people away from the card networks onto the ACH, their PayPal accounts. So basically the idea is to have a truce in that, Visa had to come up with something that would be good for PayPal. PayPal have been trying for some time to extend their reach into the physical space, you know, with some mixed degree. So the idea is the new tokenization infrastructure that Visa have been building for Samsung pay Apple whatever. Well, PayPal get to use that, which means they can run on those routes, and that gives them reach into physical. So again, I mean, it's a good deal for both of them, as far as I can see. But it, it, it's not... I, It's about using existing products, Mm -hmm. whereas what strikes me about the Mastercard vocal and cook-up is it's more about looking at the next generation of products.
0: It's interesting you make a point. There's a difference there between Visa getting um, annoyed, supposedly, at PayPal for uh, using ACH Rails and Mastercard effectively buying ACH Rails. And therefore, yeah. who are the stakeholders that are in Visa and MasterCard, and are, what are they incentivized to do? So I, I've got some questions there, and, and it's going to be interesting to watch for sure. Is he, anybody, Jason, any thoughts? Uh, uh, well, I think it's
3: interesting that, just as you say, there's such great stories to happen at the same time. Because mm. on, on one hand, you've got Vocalink, who own Master Payments, the Link ATM network, PayM, Zap, the whole sort of pay-by-bank thing that they're pushing forward, as well as that push into Singapore and the U.S., and and all of that side of things. And then on, uh, I was just looking at the, the, the details around the Visa PayPal deal, and the point seemed to be loading the account, which PayPal has pushed ACH, as the, at least in the US, as the, the prime sort of uh, channel to do that. And so there's going to be a quality... Uh, with Visa cards and, a, and a, an ability to swap to swap that over, so that's good for Visa. brings brings some stuff in there. Yeah. Did, did you want to? Well, I was going to say. I mean,
1: pay, PayPal. I think there is some pressure on PayPal to do some some new stuff in this space and get going because remember, we're not that far away from the next generation of you know Apple in app and browser based payments and that kind of thing. And historically, PayPal has benefited greatly in the online space because lazy people, e.g. me, will always click on the Paypal button, as then you type in your password, because we can't be bothered to type in card details and stuff like that. But that advantage is about to go away, yeah. because once you go to tokenize, browser, and in-app payments, that's gone. So the, the, there is pressure on PayPal to start building out towards the new markets and, and getting some traction in the physical space.
3: Uh, and that, that seemed to be the second point, the, the Visa Digital Enablement Network stuff around through issuing banks yeah. letting paypal via smartphone be a contactless yeah. payment yeah. mechanism at a retailer yeah. you know see that it seems like that jumps them into that game
1: yeah i think know, it does and quickly. i think it also allows, because now it means you can have paypal can provide tokenized in-app payments to other apps yeah and you know if we look at the sort of way things are going i know you're quite keen on the you know the api centric kind of version of this and that plays right into that
2: script
3: yeah and then the third point was that those hints of some new commercial deal, some new economics around how sort of PayPal and Visa would work, and the the cryptic sta- uh, statement was that there'd be greater fee certainty for PayPal.
2: So I don't know about any of the real kind of intricacies of these deals. All I will say is that, um, and I might be wrong about this, but my my um, understanding is that the the majority owners of Visa and Mastercard are still the banks, right? The, the main stakeholders, and I know they've. They've changed their their ownership structures over the years, but am I am I right?
0: Uh, I think they're both listed companies now, aren't they? Yes,
2: they're listed, but I presume they're like the biggest um, majority holders.
4: I love that we were all looking to Dave to answer that question, though. That was that was good. It was like uh, either way, the point
2: is they hail from a banking. They're both public companies. They're They're public companies, but it still matters who the majority owner is and who can like you know push the board around. Mm. So. from that perspective, whether or not they really, you know, bring in any competition into this area. I don't know if that's the, if that's necessarily the case. But um, my point about PayPal would be simply that, well, you mentioned this whole idea of whether the economics will work. Um, and I would say with respect to the economics, we see PayPal pushing into the credit sphere because oh, they crazy. can't yeah. actually maintain the debits, like balance on their book uh, because of the float management issues. So to make their model viable, they're increasingly moving into credit. So I find that quite ironic that the credit card companies are now moving the other way. And my own perception is that there is a very good reason why we use credit. And it's, yeah. it's a much easier way to manage payments than it is uh, to do it on the debit side.
0: And, and Amex have just announced they're getting into a kind of small business lending. And there is this progression of, of kind of those sorts of providers moving into the credit space more and more with payments being commoditized, both with Dob frank in the U.S. and also the interchange cap in Europe, um, and that now coming towards Amex it's going to be interesting to watch but It's out. not
2: just that, it's float management. The fact is, if you're holding any significant amount of balance yeah. on your books, in these days of negative interest rates it's and the scarcity of, of safe assets, you're dealing with a, with a depreciating asset book. Yeah. So you need, like, it makes sense to create your own assets, yeah. and, and that's why that's why we see the push towards credit. So I, I, I just, I think we... The bigger picture is important here, and um, anyway, I, know, I, know I don't want to distract i know we already, <laughs> No, no, it's
1: a point. point. We already don't care about this, but the top five holders of Visa shares are Vanguard Group Inc., FMR LLC, State Street, Price T. Rowe
0: Associates, and BlackRock. So
2: pension and institutional?
5: Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, right. we'll see.
0: Cool, interesting story. Moving on to the next one very briefly, Jason, you picked out a, a story from A16Z and Mark Andreessen describing money as a message. Interesting thoughts here about um, messengers and money being the future. What are your What are your thoughts on chat apps and uh, and payments? <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole uh,
3: thing we could do around conversational commerce and where payments are moving contextually into social apps. But this one drew my eye because it's talking about WeChat. I think we all probably know. WeChat, developed by Tencent in China, over a billion accounts, seven hundred million active users, and and they're just a whole ecosystem to themselves, providing everything from text messaging and uh, hold-to-talk messaging and payments. You know, you can book a restaurant, pay at the restaurant, order at the restaurant, all in one go. But Mark Andreessen pulls out a question as to how they developed essentially a. Um, an app with i think it was over 300 million people's payment details on there uh, leveraging what was in effect a um, a social occasion the the giving of red envelopes for things like weddings births parties uh, chinese new year you know it was a thing and that actually uh, to have a new platform where uh, you allow people to, um, to send those red envelopes virtually. So in 2014, they, they launched this feature called, they called Lucky Money, and then that turned into red envelopes. And then two years later, I think 420 million WeChat users sent 32 billion digital red envelopes um, over a six-day holiday. I mean, that's just crazy numbers. So um, I think we've spoken previously about M Pesa and how uh, how do you really kind of grow those kinds of payment apps? And I know sort of Dave, I've, I've heard stories on, on sort of the it was the social context of, of stuff with M Pesa that, that worked. But I'm interested in your viewers to on WeChat growth story and payments and uh, how that might link to M the, the
1: WeChat, I remember blogging about the WeChat uh, thing a couple of years ago because I can't remember what I was doing, but. Was it with Union I can't remember. We were doing some work with a with a Chinese client and I saw people sending um, it was for a birthday or something. I can't remember exactly, it was a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, it's been a general meme, I think, around us for a while, actually, that you know, why can't you use Facebook to send money just as easily as you can send anything else? I really? think broadly is true. I mean, why can't mm-hmm. it Should sort of come along. So caught at that. The, the scale of WeChat, well, actually, the scale of all of the Chinese fintechs is utterly astonishing. Um, I was with the Alipay guys, it was two weeks ago. Uh, I think PayPal has 140, 150 million active users, something like
3: that. Well, I saw, saw a note that said PayPal had 4.9 billion transactions worldwide for all of 2015. Yeah. So versus that uh, 420 million over six days.
1: I remember once being, being in a meeting where, this is to with telecoms, where they were, one of the Chinese companies was talking about setting up a limited pilot of, of something to do with AFC, um, which would only have a million users. That's <laughs> 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 a limited pilot, just to, see, just to see how it went. Look, I think, look, you, you can't always take these culturally rooted, just because something worked in Kenya doesn't mean it will work. anywhere else just because it worked in New England doesn't mean it will work here. But the general point... Uh, about uh, social context for transactions, I think is is broadly true. And the idea that you would make a transaction as part of some other kind of social interaction, um, I think is almost certainly right. What will be different about it, I think, in our context, is that we've got PSD2 coming and APIs opening up and stuff like that. So... I think in Europe we might see it going in a different way because we've got PSD two coming and APIs and all that sort of thing. So you have this whole set of deals in places like China, which are which are because you've got banks and telcos and messaging platforms all, all working together. And we're going in kind of a different way. We're going into a situation where if someone can get hold of some burgeoning social network slash phenomenon, Pokemon Go, they can get the API to your it's bank account because you can
2: poke. Because I was thinking of Nintendo coming out the other day and saying that just because they've had so much popularity and user activity in Pokémon Go doesn't mean that it translates into material profit or any change in their um, trading conditions. Well, didn't, well, there, didn't their shares crash? Yeah.
1: When they yeah. found out they, don't they didn't own it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
4: Exactly. Yeah. So somebody using somebody
1: else's app. But you, but you yeah. get my general point, which is yeah. that they'll be able to use your bank API just because so they don't have to have a deal with your bank yep. or arrangement with your telco or whatever. So. So in Europe, you could see this exploding, but in a, in a, in a different way. I
0: think. In different social contexts. I think the point you make yeah. about the social context is so critical. In every economy, every country, every society, the context around which you pay and then the simplicity of getting that moment spot on. is something Jason was talking about a couple of nights ago, which I think is, is so, so critical.
1: But don't you wonder about the difference in volume between something like Venmo and something like Pingit?
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> you can
1: send money to any reachable bank account in the UK, and the usage—I mean, I use it all the time—but I mean, the usage is really pretty limited on a grand mm. scale. Venmo's gone through the roof. So, what's the difference, given that Venmo isn't instant, isn't directly connected to the bank account? You go through the debit rails to get to it. Was because it's somehow integrated into that social context. You, you have those websites where you can go and see what people are, are Venmoing for. Yeah. Like, well, but is it, don't have any fun sites where you can go and see if people are buying drugs with uh, <laughs> You can
0: see it if they're buying it with um, credit cards on SmartSpend, but not with not with Ping it unfortunately. But the, I think the other thing is there's the branding issue, right? No, so on
1: Venmo people actually type in. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Here's the money for the weed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
4: Trans- them. Transparency in payments. That's exactly. what we like to. <laughs> but uh, I guess there isn't that a little bit down to the alternative. So something like Venmo as an alternative to the other payment capability that's available in change. the states is sort of different, isn't it? You know. And so actually, from a, a faster payments perspective and having an app where you can literally sort of dial it up and do it through it, it's kind of not that much of a leap of, of change, it's is it? At
1: least by, I, can't, you know, I know you're not supposed to use your kids as data. But I remember several <laughs> years ago, my. My eldest son and some of his friends had organized this thing in the village hall, and they had bands playing and whatever, and they were sorting out the ticket money and selling it. And I remember him saying to me at the time, because everything was done on Facebook, everything was done on Facebook, except for the money, which was, oh, can you send Steve's dad a check for this, and then he'll pay PayPal so and so. Or, you know, somebody else gave the money. And I can remember my son saying to me, well, why can't I just send it to them on Facebook? Yeah. like... That's a really good point. I genuinely don't know. It always, it, it always
0: bothered me that I couldn't. It's like the, it, it should be so obvious, and yet it seems so incredibly difficult. Have you
3: seen Paykey?
0: There's a, an Israeli startup that works with a bank and
3: lets them install a custom keyboard onto the, well, the iPhone or, or Android phone. And that keyboard then has a little paykey attached. So it integrates into whether it's uh, Facebook or, or um, WhatsApp or any of the other messengers. It's actually quite a clever sort of hack into that, that space well, it but it's, from it's a banking it's a side.
1: Spot on. Yeah, yeah. So apart from the fact that it's never going to work because it requires cooperation with a bank,
0: <laughs> <laughs> which was exactly my comment.
1: <laughs>
4: but in, in theory, though, you could see the um, somebody like Apple or Android going in that route, right? You know, so actually you start.
1: In theory, you could see Mastercard, Visa.
4: But they don't own the operating system, do they? So like, they, they, they would have an aspiration to do it in terms of the injection of a keyboard, but at the point where you know Apple Pay is literally just a um, you know a, a sheet that overlays on doing it, and a, it's a, as easy to use as an emoji-type thing, then yeah, I could tricky. see that working.
1: I, can't, I, can't, like, if I, I have no knowledge of Facebook, but I mean, if I was Facebook, the cost of getting a payment institution license wouldn't even show up on the spreadsheet.
0: <laughs> so I think they already have one. Do they? Yeah. So, I mean, why not just use the API... Bank, then you
4: don't have to deal with the bank. Mm-hmm. You've
0: got nothing to do with that. Sounds sensible. Cool. All right. So, next up, we have a call from a, an MP to break up the financial watchdog over HBOS failures. Uh, so this is an interesting one that Izzy. I was going to get um, your reaction on first, and and then ask maybe David to comment as well. Seems like um, there's a call for the FCA to be split into two here and, and become a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde. One very nice, approachable, t- you know, we want innovation type regulator, and then one uh, the thug around the back, and then <laughs> one thug that comes and, and, and kind of beats you up. So Just a
1: good cop bad Yeah. <laughs> so H. failing, they mean like the great financial. Crisis.
0: Yeah, it was it was the so 2007. They were borrowing short, so and it was maturity mismatch. So I
2: will. I will- I will just add a little uh, snippet of context. The other day, for some crazy reason, I decided to go through all the kind of um, F- F- what was then the FSA um, regulatory sort of findings on Northern Rock because I just felt that way. <laughs> uh,
4: it was a slow day, wasn't it? Yeah, clearly. Slow day. The Prime Minister has resigned for all
2: 2000, and it. Was the whole Northern Rock thing obviously happened in 2007. And I was quite stunned because it was quite clear from the analysis that came afterwards that there were huge failings by the F- FSA. Um, and none of them were really looked into. Like, And they were really basic technical problem mistakes. It was something like there was some sort of process they hadn't had to check whether or not they were compliant and, and some bit of technology failed and they didn't get the message in the FSA office so they didn't bother to look because nobody alerted them. It was something that simple and hence they didn't worry about whether or not Northern Rock was overexposed or whatever and it just struck me as amazing that something that technically um, detailed could have led to the fact that Northern Rock was getting away with all this stuff Um, and then I also noticed that nobody really took any action afterwards because we were all distracted by the financial crisis and in the the interim obviously we've we've created the FCA and, and everyone's kind of forgotten about the kind of very boring stuff that happened in in 2007. So I wonder if if there is an argument to you know explore what happened back then in more detail and to figure out whether or not we have uh, a better structure to ensure that these sorts of things can't happen anymore. But well, tell me tell me what the proposal here is so they want to
4: split it i, I think that to... would be very sensible i think i think you you almost should have written this article quite frankly in terms of uh, positioning it in that way because uh, actually as you put it there ensuring that we've got the safety nets ensuring that we've got the procedures and the processes in place to actually spot bad behavior and do something about it also why were the failings there in the first place like you say there was a lot of things that we got distracted by but this one specifically, you know, they've kind of quoted the quote for them is that basically they want this second unit to hunt down bad bankers, which feels in kind of a slightly different guise to what the FCA is kind of positioning themselves to do in with regards to sort of competition and innovation. So, um, you know, the the this seems to be being led by. So I've never heard of Andrew Tyrie. Have you ever come across him before? Yeah, he was the
1: chair of the Treasury Select Committee.
4: Yes. Um, and he seems super keen that, particularly within the Boss piece, that um, the pieces that um, Mr. Hornby sort of uh, led and the decisions that were made really sort of require sort of further investigation. So, you know, maybe it's a, it's a good idea, but I think potentially just the positioning of uh, it being a bit of a sort of a witch hunt seems a bit um, yeah. potentially Especially a bit Especially when
3: you've got, you know, the new senior manager's regime, you've got criminal offences around, you know, banking and stuff now. There's, I think there's a, you know, a lot that's changed on that in that space.
0: But it seems to be fixing it by doing more of the same, right? We're going to have different people doing more of what we did before and are we going to do it any more effectively? Well, we're going to hope they do and we're going to talk tough on it, but actually are they changing those processes? Are they um, digitising them? Is there anything you see, that can- This is
2: the problem, I think, because it's, an, it's always going to be a case of uh, human resources, right? And you can split the FCA up in all sorts of ways, but unless you actually dedicate more people to the job of supervising the system, Mm. you're never going to really change anything, because you you can digitise things as much as you want. By the end of the day, it's enforcement that matters. I
4: I agree, and I think it's, you know, the the idea that the police would be the people setting the laws. Well, no, the laws are set by other people, the police enforce them, and actually, maybe that's the context that this makes sense, isn't it? What
2: we need is a sort of untouchables scenario with Kevin Costner obviously, (laughs) and Sean Connery, gang up together oh, i
3: so like that yeah i
4: always love
2: your example says well, like, and
3: sunglasses and, it's, and just but it's
2: also about like creating a precedent and, and essentially showing that we are watching and you mm. can't necessarily get away with this I and mean, there is a, still a very obvious public perception that no one has really you know apart from the libel situation no one has really gone to prison over the 2008 crisis mm. and certainly that myth i mean i think we are seeing more people uh, get get um, Penalised or, or end up in prison, but it's still the case that the perception is that nothing happened. So we need more um, active supervision, I think, that leads to prosecutions in some way when things go wrong.
3: Absolutely. And you might argue that this is a, a fallout of, of the, um, the sort of primary and secondary responsibilities of the regulator around firstly protecting the, the fidelity and integrity of the financial system. Oh, and then, you know, developing competition and innovation as well. And, you know, do those things fit together? How are those things managed within one group?
2: Generally, I feel there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance and so much is there is a... Um, so on one hand, we want to protect the vulnerable from the predatory institutions and the bankers. But on the other hand, there's this innovation arm, which is all about like, well, caveat emptor, these guys, you know, the Ethereum situation is a very good... Uh, example of this, in so much as you know, I was having a huge uh, argument on Twitter today about whether or not uh, the people who lose out in that situation, whether it's their own fault, and you know, we have no obligation because they were speculators. You always have speculators, you can't stop gambling, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Now, I come at it from the Superman um, perspective, I think I fight for the user. Mm -hmm. And I want to defend them. That's very
0: Tron of you. It is very. It's it's
2: the superhero side of me. I I like to think that um, I can protect the vulnerable uh, from their own uh, sort of stupidity. Well,
1: remember that sort of of strange sort of teenage underdeveloped pseudo-libertarianism that conveys the kind of Bitcoin community, which which is rooted in sort of adolescent males mum won't have a playstation <laughs> is, is completely unrelated to actual political libertarianism which of course you know, of course you have, you, you, you preach individual responsibility but you don't abandon people uh, to the hands of investment bankers, you, you still have laws that protect them and look after them
2: and I, lo- I love that now you're seeing all these petitions on Reddit about how the SEC must take action against Ethereum. I
1: think uh, that's
0: hilarious. Mom! <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got some mom.
1: Look, I think... I mean, you'll put this down to, to unthinking technological determinism, but, but I, I have a feeling um, that it might well be that the, the long-term impact of the new technologies we're obsessed with at the moment, and I, I think shared ledgers and blockchain are a very good example, um, might actually be more on that kind of reg tech space than in the fintech space, because it could be that if we were to organise a derivatives market that happened to operate on a shared ledger instead of a conventionalized, it actually wouldn't be any cheaper or quicker. Or, But what it might potentially be is more transparent in some ways, and and the potential to have kind of this sort of a, a accountability that's built into the infrastructure, instead of having to have these snapshot visits and audits and so on.
2: Yeah, but well, none of that, that matters because transparency matters. is meaningless unless there's an actual human processor of that information which leads to take a, a, a an executive action. So you can have all the transparency. But it's, like, it's like all the information in the world is available to me at the moment, but I'm still not an expert on uh, you know, quarks because I just have not processed it. Uh, <laughs> you what I mean? and and this sorry.
0: was um this was the the point that was made to me by um by um, Alastair Darling when I was at the House of Lords last week sorry for name dropping but it was true yeah <laughs> you, oh, um, he, he just, just keeps bringing that up man. <laughs> but uh, the point he made was that back then we had all the information we just didn't understand it or it, uh, but the 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 point the counterpoint I made was that uh, we may have had the information but it was in different formats it was 30, 60 days late, um, and trying to understand it was half the battle. Whereas, actually, if it's, if it's uniform and there was a machine get, with a klaxon, you've at least got an opportunity to, you've, you you're half to the process? battle
2: system is now. You just
1: dynamic.
0: said they
2: didn't
0: have all the information. You just said, no, I said you
2: know, their, their text machine was broken. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> they didn't have it, it was the a technical flaw which led to the fact the information was there. They just didn't get the notice that was programmed into the system that was supposed to alert
4: them. The, the email was marked back. red. That was yeah. the. <laughs> they,
2: that's what broke down. So they didn't bother to look because they didn't get the alert to look. And the whole point is that there is a limited amount of conscious. Um, processing power out there, I, and so you can't really expect uh, transparency to solve these problems. What you need is dedicated personnel uh, that are focused on, on scrutinising these companies and, and uh, endeavours on a day-to-day basis. But then they run the risk of being captured by the movement and all sorts of por- I mean, the, the social problems. I basically. think it should
1: be possible for an FCA bot to go to Barclays Bank and have a look at their accounts and check that the assets exceed the liabilities without actually being able to read any of the individual assets. But you assets can't in. because the, you, the whole system so will this be gained because then Barclays example. will
2: create a set, like a real world physical safe where they will have white glove services and contracts that are made in paper that are not in the digital system, right? Without right. a custom model. No, but it doesn't matter, though. If well, the, the advantage of doing it in the physical plane some... is, is higher than, you know, because you're getting the arbitrage, the, the regulatory look, look. arbitrage, it's worth doing.
1: Look, think of it in Ethereum terms, right? So we have Stock Exchange Classic,
2: <laughs>
1: where everybody does insider dealing and funds up their mates and, you know, every, you know investment bankings are raping the community. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you have the new stock exchange, which is run on the shared edge or whatever. And what you would hope is that liquidity would drain to the new exchange because it's run better and it has lower... Rule of law. You don't get ripped off all the time. blah, blah, blah. So I'm not saying you'd have to have this kind of omniscient super regulator that could read all the What I'm saying is I think it might be possible using the new technology to create markets that work in a, in a, in a different way, which protect people but in a different way. And actually the money would move to those markets because they're more...
2: Except that we know efficient market hypothesis is flawed. I I have witnessed personally so many times when a bit of market moving information has sat out there in the in this you know ether. Let's (laughs)
0: like um, the Nintendo example.
2: People have completely overlooked the significance of it until someday like someone figures out that actually this oh Nintendo very good example right Mm so. So none of that information wasn't there before. It's just people don't process it properly. And it, because people are stupid and you're not you're not gonna change that with a bit of like digital technology, I'm sorry. Mm. You have to upgrade the human race and that's gonna be more difficult.
0: Mm. As sure, I'm
1: sure Elon's got a plan for that. Yeah,
0: surely the answer is <laughs> Skynet. You know, surely Skynet needs to be on well, Mom But then you
2: become the Borg, so that's another,
0: that's another I'm, I'm all for that, I, I want to upgrade and, and be a cyborg. <laughs> so okay. I,
1: I think the rot set in in 1878. When happened in
2: 1878. we ended limited
1: liability for the directors of banks in England. And it's, <laughs> it's gone wrong ever since. Goodbye to Mary Poppins and funding things in South America with your shilling. And hello, credit
0: default swaps and Enron and
1: everything. <laughs> I don't see what was wrong with the good old
0: days. <laughs> uh, well. We remember them fondly. So, next story up um, is one from, from Izzy. In fact, it's uh, titled, As Goes Correspondent Banking, So Goes Globalization. Izzy, what's the story here?
2: So, generally speaking, um, something huge is happening in the world of correspondent banking, which is that banks are withdrawing services from all sorts of precarious countries, war-torn um, nations.
0: So, Sudan and these parts of the world that really need money and need capital, but... Uh,
2: well, we all need capital, but um, yeah. arguably they need it um, in, 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 a, in a constructive sense, okay, right? Yeah, sure. Like, you don't. I, I find these sorts of um, statements a little troublesome because we all need capital. Well, if that capital is put to bad use, then it, it, no, it's funny not necessarily funny. a good thing. So, um, but generally speaking, uh, the banks have been servicing these countries for a long time very often on a loss-leading basis anyway, because it doesn't really, uh, you know, the the economies of scale here are such that they don't necessarily um, uh, profit from doing so. And they... um and even when they do make money it's it, it's mainly a branding exercise um they they do it for the sake of the greater good and for the perception of being everywhere right so uh since the crisis however and since we've brought in all the kyc aml um counterterrorism stuff um it's become increasingly costly to service these countries so banks are pulling out they're they're stopping they're not providing the correspondence uh Services anymore. As a result, these countries are losing access to hard currency, um, which is really what they operate in, because their own currencies are, are clearly not viable. Um, so this is creating all sorts of human uh, tragedies as a result of that. So Christine Lagarde and the IMF are very keen on finding a technical. Uh, solution to the problem. So Christine Lagarde gave this speech where she was encouraging every everyone essentially. Well, she was kind of hinting that banks have a responsibility to service these people because if they pull out, all that will happen is that unscrupulous actors will show up and end up servicing them, not in a constructive way.
0: I think it was um, strange. Services was the term.
2: Strange alternatives yeah. or whatever. And I, strange alternatives. I, don't, I, I don't think she. I mean, I, I kind of. I assume she meant Bitcoin and stuff like that. So, um, or other kind of parallel networks. Was she in court? At the in court? Yeah. I
0: don't
2: know.
6: But she had a nice scarf. <laughs> she's very, very um, elegant.
2: That, I hear that helps with very appearances. i uh, elegance. So.
4: But so do we think banks do have a responsibility to provide the service? So, or,
2: I mean, it's quite... Uh, her... The point is that it's better to do this on a cost basis and ensure that these countries are brought up to the standards that are, you know, um, required in, in the international global financial system. Ah, so what's she done? So just to tell. Uh, the recording the cord- device was happening. Cord- Dave <laughs> is showing me a story on his phone about Christine Lagarde. She's wearing a beautiful red suit number. And um, she's indeed
3: in court. And she's indeed
2: in court because she's standing trial over a state payout to the French tycoon Bernard Ta- Ta- Tapey.
1: He was the Marseille guy, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs>
2: it,
4: if If we take nothing hey, out, sorry, a, she, she's consistently a, well-dressed.
2: A, <laughs> <laughs> that's all about that. Um, so...
4: So to do, do we feel that actually banks you actually have a requirement? Christine
1: Lagarde, sorry, I'll say it again. So you were saying that Christine Lagarde says banks have a responsibility. Right, to, serve to the elevate people. these
2: standards. However,
1: the problem isn't the banks and the problem isn't the domestic regulators. The problem is, in my opinion, the American regulators. So what will happen is a fintech company wants to serve Somalia, right? So they'll go and say to our, the regulator, have we complied with all the KYC stuff? Yes, you have. Have we complied with all the AML stuff? Yes, we have. Have we complied with CTF? Yes. Have we complied with PEP? Yes. Can we have a bank account? No. Why not? Well, because we don't want to get sued in 10 years' time by the district court in Waco, East Texas, for a billion dollars, because you sent 50 quid to someone who turned out to be Zama bin Laden's chief cook and bottle.
0: Precisely.
1: So without safe harbour, like, if you follow the rules... It doesn't protect you, so why follow the rules?
2: Right. And, and um, so I, I think it's, it's hard for her, her to, point to say point the banks is are that being if we abandon those countries, um, then they will just descend into chaos and cultivate more terror and, and, and potentially destabilize the global financial system. And this is how it links into globalization, because fundamentally, unless we elevate all the countries see, in I, the world.
1: I agree with you 100%.
2: Um, so I guess her argument is that in the long term, Term sense, banks benefit from seeing these countries prosper. Mm. Um, so they might not make profits today, but in the long term, but, but
0: they've been fined so heavily because of some of the transactions that go through these countries. So it's, there's kind of a cause and effect. Like if you want to bash them, complex
2: it's,
6: it's a problem. question whether
1: it's disproportionate. So if you know if if a bank was deliberately flouting the law on KYC in order to handle large amounts of Mexican drug money. Mm. But it, I think actually it's better that the Mexican drug money is actually in the bank than floating around in cash because at least law enforcement can track where it's going mm-hmm. and what's going on. But that, and, and being fined proportionate amounts for doing that is one thing, but being fined disproportionate amounts for sending small amounts of money to third world countries doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and actually what happens on the, the big corridors in the UK like Somalia, what's actually happened because of that, and I'm not making this up, this is actually true, What's actually happened in those corridors is instead of having licensed money transmitters, we now have people carrying holdalls full of cash <laughs> on planes to Somalia. But this and- is
2: this is her fundamental point: is that if we are not servicing these countries, then alternatives will spring up whether that's right. cash alternatives whether that's Bitcoin whether it's like all giant I'm, boxes of
1: complaining at the banks it's not their fault
2: it's not their fault but it's a cost-benefit scenario so her like solution is uh, we should have some sort of financial technology that creates a international depository of, of data about people you know people's well, I guess kyc hmm. uh, uh information well, so this is global a, identity. A one-stop test. shop
1: for identity. Yeah, theft. yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly
2: the and then, uh, what I found quite interesting is that someone was suggesting that maybe the IMF should come in as the sort IMF of, PESA. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: yes, uh,
2: they should be the ones who provide these services at cost, and that maybe. But I think the bigger point here is that we all have a duty here, and I think the cost of doing business um, in these countries should be kind of maybe factored into financial the entire financial system because globalisation itself depends on servicing these countries and what that really means is the enforcement side of it as well as the legal um, side of it and all the other kind of unknown unknowns that stem from that like your... One huge advantage
1: of IMF so if you had IMF PESA but no KYC so basically anybody in the world could go in with their iris or something and get an IMF PESA account and start sending money to anybody else that would be a great benefit to humanity with no KYC whatsoever. There would also be charity. And the reason for that is because you have the data analysis and the big data and all that sort of talk. Like if you're the police, you actually want to find people doing bad things. Then being able to track those flows of money would be far more effective. But I'm
2: not sure it would, because again, it's about the enforcement side of it. You can have all the information. I mean, look. The other day, we've just had this priest be killed in um, in France. He, the guy was on the, the terror list. He was he had an electronic tag, and everybody knew he was a potential, um, you know, t- uh, terrorist. And yet, the, the crime happened anyway because he had like some. Uh, loophole in the system where he was given two hours free off his tag every day. He did the crime in that specific... Yeah, probably
1: shouldn't extrapolate from that.
2: Crime. No, of course <laughs> not. So he
1: got the tag in the first place because <clears throat> he wanted to go to Syria, didn't he?
2: But the point being that we can have all this information, but unless we are prepared to spend the money to enforce the
1: uh,
2: The requirements, it's very hard. you I mean, have to create saying, incentives.
1: Generally speaking, if, if the reason for basically punishing poor people, which is what these structures do. If the reason for punishing poor people is because we think it's better to for law enforcement attracting criminals and whatever, then I would say actually what we want to do is let everybody in and then track the money inside the system. That would actually be more effective. But you can never you can
2: never track everything, it's the point. Unless
1: you have a universal IMF PESA.
2: No, you couldn't because even then you would have like very you know, you would have an incentive to create off chain alternative. so there's it's the grossman stiglitz paradox argument here which is that transparency is impossible because as soon as you create transparency the incentive Uh, to to get information um goes away so you either crash the system or you create an incentive to hide the information so there's always going to be a cause and effect that leads to opacity
0: but if
1: everyone's using imf PESA
2: you but you can't force them. everyone to, to sit. You insist
0: on getting paid in cartons in my I, I fear we're stuck in an infinite loop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Oh halt and catch fire indeed so um so to, to move on very very quickly um we've got um the italian financial uh, finance minister uh, rejecting the need for a bank bail-in which made me think of the lego tune everything is awesome um it's you know, <laughs> <laughs> just they're fine no need to worry um any thoughts here from around the table I think this is
4: terrifying. I think it's um, Italy sort of saying, we're fine, don't worry, guys. You know, the, the world's not on fire and we're you know everything's okay. LA say that the everything is awesome tunes thing. Yeah, of there's a of
0: credibility issue, right?
4: Well, it feels sort of weird that they're sort of denying that there's any sort of systemic problems and, you know, rejecting any help, which I'm not really sure how they figure they're going to fix this one by just sort of hoping it goes away. Any thoughts?
1: Um, I don't know enough about... Finance, banking, Italy, or anything else to make any sort of comment about it. But um, I do think that the idea that we won't be responsible for it anymore because of Brexit <laughs> cause is a real question. The Germans are going
3: to
1: have to pay for this, right? Are you a so uh, I'm a Faye complier, so I probably would have voted marginally against Brexit. Mm-hmm. But now that we're Brexit, I think in the great scheme of things, it
4: doesn't really matter that much. Well, we're we're a nation of sort of looking on the bright side, aren't we? Really. So you know, after after the the sort of problems now, it's kind of figure out the best way out of the problems, and uh, you know, this might be one of the linings. We don't no, have to worry I, about I Italy. Think,
1: you know, things like things like the, the you know the European Union wouldn't have lasted that much longer anyway. I mean, in the great span of history.
2: So just referring back to the Italy situation, though, as far as I understand it, and I'm not a big expert on this, um, the The issue is that the the Italian um, deposit structure is different to say R1 in so much as a lot of the bank equity is held by everyday people. And so they sold a lot of these, um, it's not bank equity, but these hybrid uh, securities, they were sold to everyday people. And therefore it's not a sophisticated investor base that is being asked to be bailed in. It is specifically the retail element. And so it's very different to the bail-in discussions we've had elsewhere, because depositors are supposed to be kind of protected from this sort of stuff. And yet there was an active, this is as far as I understand the, the situation. So it's more akin to the sort of Cyprus situation than it is to anything else we've seen. So I, I, I may be making a complete dog's dinner of that analysis but that's how I understand it. So, I think so basically Italy
1: when you, when you bailed out the Greek banks <clears throat> you were really bailing out French and German banks yeah, you were but when high, you bail out the level, Italian yes. banks you are bailing out mum pop Yes, you know, precisely. Kind of that
2: that's how I understand it and I may have made a complete
4: dog. That dog's was my understanding as well. Yeah.
1: Very interesting. Uh, but to your point presumably no one's going to jail for this so? I don't know. I
2: mean it's It's Italy.
1: <laughs> I remember a case study, which I might have read in the FT. Actually, there was a there was a big scandal in Italy, which was something to do with milk, wasn't it? It was a milk company or uh,
2: pal, 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 yes, wasn't And I remember <laughs> because it, it happened at the same yeah. time as
1: Enron. Yes, yes, and, there was a huge you know, scandal. In Enron, people went to jail and whatever, and in Italy they didn't. And so people point to Enron as this look at the failure of capitalism or whatever, but in but, fact it was an absolute triumph. Capitalism because they got caught and went to jail. In Italy, nothing happened.
2: I love. This isn't um, for the podcast. I just <laughs> love um, Italy generally in this yeah. sense because. So the key bank here is a bank called, um, uh, excuse the pronunciation, but it's like Monte de Pasqui de Siena, right? And obviously it's very much connected to the town of Siena, which itself is known for w- one major thing, which is the, um, the horse race called the Palio. I don't know if you know about this. Um, there's a fantastic documentary about Palio, because, uh, it, which I really encourage you all to watch, um, because this is a horse race, like un- unlike any other horse race, it's not a skill in horse riding. It's a skill in bribing your competitors and your potential, like the funders of the event. So the person who wins is the person who's corrupted um, the respective, uh, you know, participants the most to let you win. So it's a complete exercise in. In in financial diplomacy, I would say, rather than in horse riding, and I just think it's funny that all the problems um, in the banking sector sort of are are concentrating in this in this Monte de Paschi Siena bank, August which the is 16. so known. We're for, in time. Uh, we can go. Oh, it's a great. It's Avin. It's really good. It's a fun <laughs> day out.
3: So, how does the uh, the bribing and the corruption ha- does it happen
2: in the streets? Do they but It's go just to over. Nature, it's though, just over. No, no. It's to be months ahead of time. Like the. Um, the respective uh, horse owners are are doing deals behind the scenes and figuring out who this you know it's a bit like oh each horse so it's been going since
1: 1644 yeah and each horse represents a different sort of municipal district
2: and and who wins is basically who bribes the per like so the people, people ride
4: sleep. just slow. Yeah.
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> um, don't even, don't yeah. even bother. Yeah. it <laughs> does I feel. I just love the
2: fact that this goes on in Italy so overtly. Well, you know, I just, and it I does don't... feel like the
4: most Italian thing, doesn't it? You know, it's there's Italian like a horse's things. head being found somewhere in somebody's bed at some point. You know, it kind mm-hmm. of uh, feels all very yeah, think, on theme. I yeah. think
3: Simon's going to be very disappointed if you uh, if you make the comparison with wrestling. Big, oh, yes. Being a big, I'm sorry, big I know uh, about WWF fan. I shouldn't have even <laughs> that. It's a fix,
0: but it's art. That's all I'm saying. Uh, okay, so um, we're conscious of time. Um, we're going to very quickly okay. talk about Fedor Fuels O2 mobile banking launch. David, you said this was your favorite story of the week. Did you?
1: Yes, it's my favorite story of this week. And that's because I made a podcast for our iTunes series with Sophie Gibo from Fedor, who is the European business development, I think, based, based here in London. And as part of that conversation, she was talking about the idea of the, what well, they were calling the FIDOR OS, you know, white labelling their technology platform, and separating the technology part of the company from the bank operating part of the company, which I thought was extremely interesting, very fascinated by it, because for a lot of reasons, and I guess this is true for Jason as well, we're all very interested in how FIDOR evolved, because it was the first bank that was built on this kind of you know, modern architecture. So it fascinates us in a lot of different ways. You know? So to see that architecture exposed and opened up as a platform to a third party, which in this case Telefonica, I think is a really interesting case study. And I think seeing how seeing how that OS uh, evolves, um, I think it tells it does genuinely tell us something about where banking is going next. I really think it does.
0: Right, so there's an interesting point here about will big banks do a similar thing? Because they, they've got a you know, very high structured cost base. The back end of a bank you know, kind of does the same thing realistically, they, they all kind of have the same sort of functions. They have a payment engine and a call banking engine and a, and a KYC AML and a fraud detection engine. So they all do broadly the same things, they just configure them differently. You know, is Fedor showing us the way here for, for how bigger banks might need to think about reorganizing themselves?
1: Well, I think I think is a case study in what what some people would call the sort of Amazonization
0: mm-hmm.
1: of banking in the sense that one of the important things about the sort of Amazon way of doing things was that it was, uh, maybe it was the first company, I don't know, certainly one of the first companies, where essentially everything that was done inside the company had to be delivered through an API. Mm-hmm. And everything that was built was built to consume APIs. Mm-hmm. There was no access to the, to the raw resources. And this led to a new way of doing things a way of getting things done quickly a way of building more sophisticated infrastructure and it, and if it's true i mean i defer to you guys because you know you know more about what goes on inside the bank than i do um, i'm always faintly surprised when an actual statement arrives or a transaction goes through <laughs> to be it's all string and sealing wax right? but if that thinking is right then it should mean that there's the potential for more innovation, um, there's the potential for more innovation in services, because the API approach will free up the people inside the bank to, to develop and think in a different way, you know, and so, uh, as well as exposing some of those APIs externally. So, no, I thought it's a, it a very interesting story, and, I, and I'll definitely be curious to see how that evolves.
3: Uh, I guess it's one of those default endpoints that actually with PSD2, with the opening of APIs, you know, on one hand, you've got uh, banks are end up, end up forced being, you know, pipes to use a cliche. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, while at the same time, there are people who are who are looking to specialise specifically in that. So you've got Fedor OS, you've got Solaris uh, in Berlin, who are who are very much aiming to to create that sort of banking back end as a platform piece. Um, but I think the the big banks I've spoken to, at least, uh, are, uh, want to own that relationship. Want to to still be at the forefront to have their brand to, to be non-commoditized because I think that's the danger you suddenly get into commodity services and Solaris and Fidor are offering it for this price you know, and suddenly that, that just drops everything so I think it's interesting that kind of pipes and platforms where do, you, where do you end up and where's the default but if you
1: were a bank I mean one of your reasons so, so you, can, you can sort of passively accept the migration to API or you can make it part of a strategy and if you make it part of a strategy, which would be like the Salesforceization rather than Amazonization, yeah. it would be to say, because this is the example which says, look, Salesforce has, I don't even know what it has, 50,000 employees or something, but it has 500,000 registered developers. So Barclays has X thousand people in IT, but most of them spend most of their time on the legacy yeah. infrastructure. So the number of people actually building new applications is very small. But suppose we could harness this development... So there's that line of thinking which is sort of sees, but I think there's something different about the FIDO or telephonic thing because this is about enabling people inside the bank to build in a more effective way and to have mm-hmm. ideas that can be realised in a, in a shorter time. I mean, which of these is the best approach? I couldn't. Well, have, it's, it's I have that, literally no idea. It's, 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 it's interesting that interesting
3: spectrum of sort of indie developers up through fintech startups to multinationals. I think... Uh, the interesting thing is what large retailers or what, what companies could partner to deliver this kind of thing.
1: But there are people that make a living being salesforce developers, right? Yeah. But there's nobody that makes a living being a bankers developer. Or a, or a, so, so the question is, if the banks had common APIs, and you know, could that market spring up?
0: And does the bank go for an approach where one bank tries to be Apple and lock you into their platform? Um, And is that more likely than some sort of open standard whereby there are open APIs? Because in the internet space, you either use Google or you use Apple or you use Facebook, there isn't a lot of interoperability happening.
2: Can I just ask, what are we going to be using these APIs for? Can I have an actual working example of how these APIs are going to change my life as a consumer? Because as far as I can see, most of the applications are based on behavioral uh, stuff that is inclined to make me better understand oh, my spending. Classic a
1: example, right? I go to log into one of my favorite websites. Like home secretary's in heels or something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've got to prove that I'm over 18 mm-hmm. to that. So the people that actually know I'm over 18 are going be the bank if it's have done that KYC. Right? So I should be able to just click on the thing which says go to my bank. right? They go to Barclays, they ping the Barclays API, something shows up on my phone, I authenticate. All of this stuff should happen seamlessly and in the background through APIs. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be, int- or, or, you know. So when- that's
2: a use case where I get to benefit from services that I would otherwise have to prove my age to.
1: What you're in fact doing is you're granting a third party access to your bank account for certain specific and limited purposes.
2: Okay. But only that's for perfect. those
0: certain specific and limited purposes. I'd like purpose.
2: to know more about those purposes. Like, what is an app? Like, so that's the one hypothetical example. I don't see how that really adds value to anybody. In the I,
3: world, I think there's, um, aggregation. There's, there's an interesting thing with APIs because they tend to be explained from the technology up. Rather than the use case down. Yes. Well, but from my perspective, well, the APIs... customer will
1: never see them. No, no, exactly. The customer will be in Facebook. Facebook would say, "Hey, would you like a Fre- I see you're going to France. Would you like a French bank account?" And you just say, "Okay." Yeah, yeah. But for me,
3: APIs enable end-to-end journeys with multiple actors on some kind of platform. It doesn't even mm-hmm. have to be your platform. So you have to think about proving identity, or when do you have to refer to your statement or get a statement or check what you pay paid for something or borrow some money. So maybe an end-to-end journey would be you go to a high-end boutique, you're looking at something, actually you want to borrow some money to buy that and pay it back you know, in installments. It could be APIs that connect all of those services together. So I think it's, it's actually so basically an end-to-end... basically something that stops it-
2: me having to fill out forms... In the
1: EBA, well I think it's one more in in the EBA model they have at the moment, you have these three categories of APIs. So they have the mandatory payment APIs, which are Mm -hmm. the core of the PSD2 stuff. You have the non-mandatory payment APIs, which is the stuff where you'd expect the banks to have areas to differentiate themselves. Different banks would offer different APIs in that space. And then you have the third category, which is the non-mandatory non-payment APIs. And I think uh, the opportunities for banks to offer maximum differentiation will be in that third category. It's not stuff to do with payments. It's stuff to do with you know, your identity, your reputation. I know you think I'm obsessing about this, but the, the thing about your reputation is that's the crucial, vital thing about you that needs the protection and the security of a bank. And those kind of things could potentially, because you use it in so many different places, those could potentially be very big. Let's say, I come and I, let's say we connect with each other on Ashley Madison, just as an example. What's the first thing you would want to know about me on Ashley Madison?
2: How many previous girlfriends you had. Oh, really? I on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I the
1: There's no match
4: person. here. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> you want to know a real person. Um,
2: and know? Then,
0: it's just a
1: simple basic question, like, is this a real person? Sorry. There's no way of answering that now. Uh-huh. But in that API world, it should be easy just to go to the... Barclays, is this a real person? Yes, it is. Barclays provide a token. Now you know I'm a real person. You don't know that I'm with Barclays. You don't know what my name is. But here's a token which says I'm a real person and a regulated financial institution in the UK knows who I am.
2: Okay. You
1: know, those kind of things to me seem much bigger and more interesting and more fantastic. than
3: painful. So the, uh, the Open Banking Working Group when they produced their framework report had uh, I think six propositions current account comparison services am I getting a good deal on a, on a variety of things by comparing them all they had personal financial management can you pull all of your, all of your data and start to look at where you are and how you're you know, set up and doing across all doing of your accounts uh, access to credit so using your bank account data to show whether you know, someone should lend you something affordability checking online accounting fraud detection So that was their uh, set, their propositions of what to design, what to start to design again.
0: So the really short way I'd say this is: it, when somebody comes out with a bunch of new tools, developers get excited with them, and it's not until five years later something builds, somebody builds something awesome with it. So cloud came along, and everyone, you know, all the techies start going, "Yay, clouds, clouds!" and it all sounded a bit silly. And then, you know, sort of five, ten years later, you've got Netflix, you've got Instagram, you've got companies built entirely without backend infrastructures. Similarly with APIs, developers will surprise you and build things you didn't know you needed. And I think that's where it really starts coming to come into That's where
2: I have trouble with it. The If I didn't know I needed it, I probably didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a general... I'm generally kind of concerned about this mentality of, like, feeding people free stuff just because... Uh, they think that's good for them. And but a lot it, of the stuff that I, I fear will be developed will be focused on behavioural stuff, focused on um, convincing me I'm spending too much money on shoes and I should be spending more money on, like, I don't know, something more.
0: But doesn't life admin ever just really annoy you and paperwork and that kind of crap? And if that could be a lot simpler and easier, wouldn't you prefer that? I mean, that's true even with a single but Because
1: I've, I've just been going through a remortgage. Barclays is my back I've just been going through a remortgage with Barclays to get and you know it's astonishing what you can't do because mm-hmm. i just assume that okay i'm going to do a remortgage so there's a button somewhere which says change this mortgage to one with a lower interest rate and nothing could be further from the truth you know the amount of mucking about oh, you've, so- you've got you've got to bring in copies of your of your payslip barclays has had every single monthly salary payment of mine since 1977 <laughs> Sorry. every single one I've always had marketers in my primary mm-hmm. bank they know exactly what I get paid at. and I've got to bring in copies of my payslip. slip I mean
0: so this is the Achilles heel of the whole uh, API debate in PSD 2 is it's wonderful to have great APIs that everybody can consume, but can the systems underneath that actually cope with what they're trying to achieve? And actually, the process you've just described there says no. So it's great that the banks might be forced to deliver APIs, but it becomes like account switching, whereby you know, you're know forced to promise you can switch an account, but actually the systems and processes underneath it can't really, can't really move.
1: Oh, actually, I told a lie about the... Uh... Because actually, the account account switching is my favorite story of the week. <laughs> because the new, the new statistics for the current account switching service came out, and it's fallen another 5%. So basically, ever since the banks were forced to spend 750 million quid on the stupid account switching service, the number of accounts being switched has steadily gone down. I mean, it's an astonishing investment. Yeah, but it's just preparation for the new
3: digital banks. I, oh, right. I just have, have to going, say that. It's all
1: going to There change, is no right?
3: motivation or yeah. reason to So the fact that I can change in seven days instead
1: of ten, that's going to make all the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to reduce the
3: friction. Because I'd say there's there's motivation versus friction. There's, there's no friction, there's but do you want a green,
1: blue, or red card? Seven or ten days makes no... I, Put money on the table right now. Seven or ten days makes absolutely no difference to anybody. Yeah, I agree. There's a difference between instant and a few days. That would make a difference.
0: Yeah, but then that's not a difference
1: between seven and ten
0: days. I agree. That's not an issue of APIs. That's an issue of the systems and certain processes inside banks. And guys, apologies, but I'm going to have to call this one to uh, a halt now. And thank you, David. Thank you, Izzy, for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. You guys were on form as always that was amazing thank you
2: thank you for having us i always laugh from arguing with you
0: <laughs> thank you so now david and izzy have unfortunately left us we have one excellent story to cover that um, our own mj from 11fs team came up and found so this is a drop in internet banking as the rise in banking apps is recorded uh, mj what's this all about
5: Yeah, thanks, Simon. Um, So earlier this week, the BBBA came out with some research, found that daily internet banking logins fell to 4.3 million per day, um, whereas the mobile app logins reached 11 million per day. Uh, And this was actually a 50% rise from the research in 2014. Um, I don't think this is particularly surprising. Um, We've seen this trend in the likes of Sweden, Australia, and the US. So, way back when in 2013. Uh, Danske Bank in Sweden actually announced that 62% of total logins came from the mobile channels. And also that year, Handelsbanken reported that mobile logins overtook desktop. Moving on to 2014, um, Australia experienced something similar. So 38% of all Australian customers, um, their interactions occurred via smartphone or tablet, which was up from 22%. And in the same year, internet banking amongst Australians fell from 42% to 35%. Also in the U.S. in 2014, Wells Fargo, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan all reported that mobile banking overtook desktop banking.
3: So Um, is is there anything surprising in this? Is this just the world's going mobile?
5: I mean, I think that apart from the obvious, the fact that a mobile phone is literally sort of an extension of one's hand nowadays. Um, I think there is some credit due to the banks in the UK. Um, over the past couple of years, they have been making some strides. And I think that there's two key things that are driving this uptake in mobile banking. I, fir- I think first the fact that it's easier to actually get into the app. Um, So the login process when compared to desktop is much easier, Um, and essentially you can now do more within the app itself. So I think that if we look at the ease in login, we saw that last year NatWest and RBS, they were the first UK bank to uh, implement Touch ID. And if you look at some of the other high street banks, so Lloyd's and Nationwide both have a type of express login. Um, So Lloyd's customers enter partial digits from their password. Nationwide customers enter partial digits from a passcode. Um, Barclays and RBS customers can create their own five-digit PIN. Um, So this is much easier than using the typical username and password and even the pesky card reader, um, which customers have to experience with internet banking.
3: And I guess you've got some of the, the quick balance uh, functionality now, where you don't actually have to to put in a pin in order to see what your balance is, which I understand is the most popular journey for for mobile
0: banking.
5: Yeah, certainly. I mean, Nationwide was the first bank to come up with that, um, so customers can actually see their quick balance in the app. But then, what Tesco Bank, which was really cool, following the likes of Discover in the states um, and BNP Paribas in France, is you can actually see the balance in the phone's notification center, mm-hmm. so without even logging into the actual iPhone. You can see the balance, which just make things much easier.
0: Now, I wonder what that... Has that had any noticeable effect? And I don't know if you've got the stats, but I wonder if it's had any noticeable effect on the amount of logins. Because for me... When I'm logging into the app, every now and then it's transactional. But the vast majority of the time, I'm sitting on the tube, um, I've or I've, I'm sitting on, a, on some sort of journey somewhere. I've checked all of my social networks. I'm kind of out of stuff to do. I'm bored. <laughs> there's maybe music playing, and I just check my bank because the, well, that's just something I do. Like, how much of this is actual engagement versus how much of it is is kind of you know really um, people starting to transact there and, and do their banking there?
3: And there's something interesting about whether. Engagement and actually the number of times that a, a customer will actually log into an app, especially for a banking app, is a good thing. Yeah. Especially in a in a world where a large number of those customers are logging in just to make sure they don't get into overdraft or or don't go through a, a certain level. You know, I, you could see a, a situation where uh, less logins indicated a better service. So I, I'm always suspicious of. The fanfares around, you know, we've had X million logins this week, you know, and it's our, our most popular branch, you know, right. our mobile phone, when actually, ideally, you don't want to force customers to log in.
4: Yeah, I, I, I'm a bit concerned about this. If I'm honest with you. it feels like value destroying migration of customers to a channel where you can't actually add value to them. You know, most, um, most UK banking mobile apps at the moment have got almost no marketing and no sales capability. So, you know, the fact that Banks are spending all of this time migrating them to a channel that they can 't really interact with them you know that 's not saying to say that mobile can't offer that type of dialogue, but at the moment it doesn't so you know if I was sitting back in a bank like I, I used to and, and sort of had these stats in front of me i 'd be pushing our mobile development team incredibly hard to a, integrate propensity modelling into the UX of the, the mobile banking apps, but then also I'd, I'd be prioritising mobile journeys for application processes ahead of pretty much everything else.
0: Yeah, it's fine to have a mobile app that lots of your existing customers are using, but if nobody you can't acquire new customers through it and you're closing branches, how do you acquire customers? Exactly. How do you... How do you- grow your business and you know it would be interesting to see a breakdown and I don't think anybody will make this available but my suspicion is there's a lot more effort still going on to the digital banking platform than there is into the mobile banking platform and, and as a result you see a lot more conversion um, and a lot more kind of, uh, effort on round acquisition on that digital banking platform and a lot less really in, in the mobile space which is kind of, we've all got an app it's table stakes, people are using it great but we're not actually benefiting yeah.
4: from it I think the other the other thing I'd sort of say on the, the like things like the quick balance and that type of stuff for me it's um and this is kind of again going back to you know thinking about it in a in a kind of a retailer sense you know your balance is essentially you know like milk in a supermarket you know there's a very good reason why the milk is at the back of the supermarket because you you want them to engage with a bunch of other things and then you want them to stand at the till and you want them to buy that Mars bar that they know they shouldn't be buying mm-hmm. um, but arguably you know this is what banks have done. They've put the milk right at the front of the store and you know, time will tell whether it actually has a, you know, detrimental effect on really what they're they're doing and how they're selling things.
3: I'd come into it from a guest the, the opposite angle. Why is the milk at the back? It benefits the retailer. But if I'm going in and I want to just pick up some milk, then I want it at the front of the store as a customer. I think there's also something interesting about how we're moving from one level of security for everything whether you want to transfer money or look at a balance or find a particular transaction in your mobile statement you had to go through the you know what's my third fifth and seventh digits what's my account number code you know all kinds of stuff and i'm i'm pleased to see that there's a we're starting to see some levels of security that there are things that you can do without having to log in both because of the the social contract around mobile phones, you don't go and pick someone else's phone up and start messing around with it. And it, it, equally, most people have passcodes or okay. um, or Touch ID in order to open them. Uh, I think from my my digital challenger bank background, uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of progressive security for for things that, that, that require it, but they're not everything does. And indeed with, with Mondo we found that a lot of people were very happy with being able to see their transaction list and the balance, albeit on a prepaid card alpha platform, but without having a, an extensive login or, or a, you know a pin code.
5: Yeah I think that I think that's certainly something the, the UK banks are missing out is really just using sort of the navel, uh, the native mobile features as well. so like so geolocation and using the camera and to go with Simon's point on onboarding we've seen last year SNS in the Netherlands sort of rolled out this really smooth onboarding process for new to bank customers that use the camera on the phone to scan the customer's passport um, which would pre-populate all the details and everything and essentially could become a customer in about 5 minutes within the app which was really nice which is um, the
3: fintech world approach
5: you know definitely. you download
3: the app you you scan your details, you put your address in, you go through a little KYC and the card's on its way to your to your house.
5: Exactly. And even in the fintech world, like for, for example, for Mondo and TransferWise, when you add a debit card into the wallet or to make a top-up, you can use the camera to scan the card. It's like what Uber does. It makes it super simple. And the fact that no high street banks are sort of taking this approach to adding sort of a debit card to pay off a credit card or anything, uh-huh. I think that... They really need to work on that. And also going to geolocation, what we've seen is that a few banks in Sweden um, are using geolocation to send customers alerts to registering trips abroad um, and also cross-selling travel insurance. Um, so one of the banks in Sweden, if a customer is at an airport, um, a ferry terminal, or a train station, they'll get a push notification saying, hey, do you have your travel insurance? If not, click on this link, go ahead and get it. And hey, have you registered your card um, to be used abroad? So that's quite a nice touch that's that some That's super contextual,
0: of the banks- right? I am mean, in this moment, I can see you're doing this thing. Have you sorted out your travel insurance? push this button and it's done one less thing to think about and if like me, you've gone to go and travel somewhere and the person you're travelling with gets chicken pox the day before you fly and you forgot to get travel insurance and you miss your flight as a result of trying to deal with that in hospital, (laughs) then actually you don't get a lot of money back from your flight and that's quite frustrating. (laughs) Is that a personal maybe? (laughs) It
3: does tie back into the conversation we're having with Dave and the conversations we've been having recently around context being king Mm -hmm. and that being able to, to anticipate an offer Great services to customers because you have an insight into their the, their context, whether it's geographical, social, or their intent of doing something. It seems like it's
0: it's just a key a key point of, for the future of uh, of fintech and, and banking. And absolutely, and we were talking about that. So, the David, uh, Jason, and I were at the uh, Global CIO Banking Summit over the last two days. Beautiful location and, and towards Ascot. Um, and indeed, we were suggesting that to to a number of uh, executives. That we're out there, that this context being king is, is really, really crucial. And Jason, uh, you spoke to an executive from uh, Kebanca, I believe. Yes, I think we've got some audio to run.
3: Hi, so I'm here with Antonio Fratta Passini. I'm sure I just completely murdered the pronunciation of that name. <laughs> no, uh, you, you did great, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Antonio's head of CRM and omnichannel banking at Kebanca, is that right?
6: Yeah, Kebanca, it's perfect.
3: And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about Kebanca.
6: Well as Kbanko we started in May 2008. And we are a retail bank, part of the Mediobanca Group, which is our mother company, an investment bank, that in 2007 decided to have a retail funding arm in order to provide funding to, to the group. We started from retail. I mean, our, our value proposition at the, beginning, at the beginning was term deposits, so very safe investment with high interest rate. Then we developed current accounts in order to have them more sticky, more stable and we develop uh, services attached to the current accounts and now we move to investment because of course where that's where the margin is and, and that's now our primary goal but we we see investments and the retail or the transactional side to be part of the same job
3: so i guess that that leads us effortlessly into the
6: how does kibanka make money so in in our model we we basically you know our primary job is to keep the money for the group and then the group will invest in other and other type of investments. We we uh, as a retail, we also have a, a consumer finance uh, uh, company, which is our brother or sister, as you mm-hmm. call it. So the money that we get from the customer go to the parent company, that can of course decide where to lend it or where to invest it. Uh, and on our PNL, uh, of, of course, all the commission that we get from the investments is definitely something we own, and, and we get directly from the customers. And we also have a quite uh, growing and important book of mortgages, which is around 5 billion. So also this gives us a little bit of margin uh, these days. And of course, gives the opportunity to cross sell the customer uh, when you sell them the loans. And, and, and of course, afterwards.
3: So would you call yourself a challenger bank, a new style bank, or are you a, a more traditional player? How do you fit within the Italian financial services
6: market? Well, we'll definitely a challenger bank. Although we come from a very traditional uh, mother company, which because Mediobanca is recognized as to be one of the most uh, traditional institutions in the country, we are very proud of being innovative not only in in our distribution uh, uh, channels, but also in our communication, in our way of communicating. I think we did a lot of buzz when we went out in two thousand and eight because we were among the first bank of really exploiting music in our advertising. Okay. And so we, we, we did a lot of uh, rumors in the market when we came out with the first marketing campaigns. And thanks to that, I think we also were very successful at the beginning to acquire assets and customers and through time to retain those assets because if you, can, if you think about in that time, terms deposit were priced quite high but nowadays the interests are very low across yeah. all of Europe, and we still have uh, we still kept the customer base, and we kept cross selling. Quite so. Heavily. So, what's
3: the secret? What What's been the uh, I guess the secret to your growth?
6: I think uh, there were three main, I would say, suggestion that uh, work it quite well for us. So the first one is to keep uh, communicating to the customer in a fair and transparent way, so that can you can really establish a, a sort of uh, pact. Sort of uh, uh, faithful uh, relationship uh, with uh, with the client, so he understands that when you want to say something to him, it's relevant. So he will listen to you eventually. Secondly, is to keep the developing a product and services in order to provide value to the customer. Because it, in the end, if there's no value, he won't he won't buy. He won't stick today. Mm-hmm. And lastly, I think it goes with the customer experience. It's the way we try to uh, serve the customer. It's, uh, it's really uh, paramount for us. So we keep evolving. We keep improving the way we serve our customer. So how is your
3: your product, your services? How are they different from the, I guess, the other players in the uh, in the Italian market?
6: Well, if, if we if are talking of, uh, if we are talking now investment, which is where the the money is at the moment, given that interest margins basically disappeared if we're thinking about investment, we have a a variety of services. But for us, for example, we we decided not to have our product offering. We went on open architecture since the beginning. So we provide the customer with 4,000 funds. Wow. And then we have services to help them to pick the right one. Because if you put in front of the customer 4,000 funds, they might get lost. Uh So we work with communication. We work with services. And of course, all the channels have been instructed in a way that they can provide the best advice to the customer in order how to pick it. And lastly, we launched recently our RoboAdvisor service, Mm -hmm. which is basically a a, a nice way to tell the customer, if you tell me what's your aim, what's your goal, how much time do you have Mm -hmm. to reach that goal, and how much money do you want to put in now, Mm -hmm. I can tell you what's the best asset class you can choose from our 4,000 funds, and we will follow together the path in order to reach that goal. And this seems to be very uh, interesting because the customers love that. Mm. Because they feel like they have a a safe uh, angel behind their shoulders who tells them what to do in order to achieve that goal.
3: So how does that work with, with regulation and with the regulators? Because it seems, you know, when we talk about robo-advice and we talk about sort of guiding customers, then we get into the, that whole advice, guidance, education, where does it fit, uh, and who's liable for when when one of those investments
6: goes wrong? Definitely the bank. I mean, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't hide behind this question. It's definitely an advice that the bank is giving to the customer. So ultimately the customer will decide whether to do it or not. But of course, he will blame the bank if something goes wrong. What we are trying to do is twofold. From one side, we are trying to increase a little bit the financial literacy of our customer by providing them with uh, uh, articles, games, uh, quiz, in order to help them understand a little bit better what the financial world is about. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, the tools we provide in order to follow how the investment is going, they tend to be as easy as possible we 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 try to make uh, stuff like uh, uh, you know when you talk about standard deviation when you talk about risk people don't understand that Mm -hmm. so we are trying to adapt the front end so what the customer sees in a way that if there is no advisor or if his uh, financial literacy is low he will get very simple stuff then of course he can switch into more advanced adoption and have the full explanation from textbook uh, style but what we are trying to achieve is it's really to speak the voice of the customer, to speak the way he understands it. What's the goal? Where will Kebanka be in a few years? That's a very tough question. Well, for the moment, we recently acquired the Barclays franchise in Italy. So I'm, as a customer, as a ratio manager, I'm very happy to, do, to have 220,000 customers more. <laughs> uh, and so the, the ultimate goal will be to keep growing our, our, our share of wallets, in respect of their lives and their and 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 their wealth so i think uh, from one side we want to definitely uh, reach the one million customer base which was one of the target we had at the beginning Uh and on the other side i think we want to head towards 10 billion of mutual funds assets which is very important in order to provide commission to 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 our pnl but these are just rough numbers
3: and what about the rest of the market? Are you looking at focusing primarily in Italy? Are you moving across Europe?
6: for the moment uh, I, I, I have to I have to stick to the Italian market, but we'll see the right. future I mean we'll always keep an eye open and regulation is changing so fast that uh, you never know I mean with, with the current state of the regulation you, you don't need to be uh, you know in a specific country if you want to do banking even from from Italy so mm. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on regulation from one side, and hopefully, be ready to to jump uh, across if, we de- if and when we decide to.
3: Mm. So, do you have any view of, of APIs and connecting into financial services companies in order to deliver additional services for your own customers?
6: Yep, we we've been developing our API last year, so it was something missing in our architecture, and we we close the uh, we close the gap. We are now trying to uh, do the second step, which is open API, because uh, internal API is sorted. Now we need to have a proposition for open API. And as you said, the the, the strategy here is really to integrate third-party services in a seamless way to, to, to boost revenues and, and and to have good partnership with partners with selected partners to provide more value to to our customers so I, I can definitely see that coming through the next years
3: and so we've I guess we've seen different API strategies in terms of working with engineers all the way up through startups to to multinationals where do you play in that kind of market are you looking to partner with the big incumbents or are you looking to uh, to allow uh, individual developers to make to make things with Kibanka?
6: Well, I, I, at the moment, for example, we are working with uh, big incumbents like PayPal. Mm-hmm. We integrated their services in our wallet because they have a much bigger customer base. So through our wallet, which is open to third-party fir- cards, so you don't need to be a Banka customer, you can uh, put your credit cards, and then you can do a white transfer to anybody who has a PayPal account. Mm-hmm. So we join their seven million customer base in Italy, which is something quite good. Mm-hmm. So this is as an example of a partnership with an incumbent, and on the other hand, we are partnership with fintechs. For example, the Robo advisory service I was telling you is is also done in partnership with a, with a, a, a fintech mm-hmm. so I, I think both sides of the market it depends who is going to provide the best value to our customer to our vision in order to fit to our vision
3: that's great well Antonio thank you for taking a few
0: minutes to, uh, to talk to us
6: thank you very much for your invitation bye bye
0: and that wraps us up for this week thank you very much to our guest Dave Birch Izzy Kaminska and, of course, all of the 11FS team. Dave Birch, you can find at the Consult Hyperion Thought Leaders blog. Please do check him out on Google um, and follow him on Twitter. He's a very, very funny man. Um, and same for Izzy Kaminsko. The FT Alphaville blog is well worth checking out. Until next week, with Spin Fintech Insiders, you've been our audience. We love you.